and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you, giving you our E3 recap for this, the year 2021. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you once again here on this fine program, as you are all out there listening, because you are all fine people, and we're all fine together, and it's all fine to be back together, isn't it? It sure is. Um, and this week I'm Dennis, the man who still can't get over how much alcohol and cigarettes were casually consumed in the 1960s. <laughs> I mean, it could be argued that's, uh, that, that's, uh, Nickname that's not really related to E3, but it's almost as if you want to talk about something else that's not E3 related before we talk about E3, E3. Yeah, I mean, j- just before we get into, you know, E3-related stuff, uh, me and my, you know, girlfriend, we've been watching Mad Men, <laughs> you know, because, you know, there's lots of shows, you know, on the go and stuff. You know, we've we started and stopped a lot of series, not stopped on purpose. You know, sometimes it's just another thing comes along, you start watching that and you forget about a thing. So now we're trying to go back and, like, Finish up shows where it's like, no, we actually should probably just finish this one up. Mad Men's one of those ones. Currently, you know, about halfway through the series right now. Um, and I'm, it's just mind blowing how much everyone in that whole world in the 1960s drank and smoked. Now, yes, I know, I know that the whole focus, you know, is just on the, the advertising people, like the, the Madison Avenue ad men of that era and, the whole focus is around their world and, you know, it's, I do know that the advertising world, even up until like the late eighties, early nineties was very alcohol fueled. And I mean, agency work in general still kind of is to a point. So like the point is just to kind of show the drinking in general there, but just the fact that it's the sixties and like everyone is smoking, literally everyone smokes and literally everyone drinks a lot. (laughs) Like, at all the dinner parties and everything, you just see all the, you know, it's, it's, it's mind blowing how you're expected to, how much you're expected to drink and how much you're expected to still maintain a level of appearing not drunk, <laughs> which, is, which is very, you know, societally different then clearly, because that's not really the case anymore. Yeah. You, you'd, uh, there'd be a peer pressure either spoken or unspoken to just keep up with everyone else and their uh, rate of drinking. Because uh, if you didn't, well, you'd be looked down upon as though there's something wrong with you, but still have the expectation parallel to that uh, expectation of still drink in line with other people and what the amounts they're drinking to still do your job, to still function, still drive to and from work, you know, yes, do, do whatever you have to do, but still be a functioning, productive member of society. Also, there's booze everywhere. Yeah. Which seems ridiculous to be looking at, uh, looking at that window into the sixties. It's, it, you know, it's not a direct portal into the sixties. We're not looking at old timey footage from the sixties uh, of a documentary or whatnot. It is an interpretation of the sixties, but still it feels very authentic as a show. And, uh, it's kind of crazy. The amount of just, I mean, it's crazy to look back on it now in the year of 2021 to look back at the 60s where, you know, currently it's frowned upon, you know, the prevalence of smoking in society has just been greatly diminished over the last, really our lifetime, 20, 30 years. The, the, yeah, uh, the removal of smoking sections from restaurants, from planes, from shopping centers or any sort of enclosed space. Uh, yeah. 
you know, for that aspect too, it makes Mad Men in the sixties look even more crazy. Well, I mean, I do remember in my lifetime a time when, like, you know, as as someone that has been in bands and stuff for a long time, I mean, I started playing shows, like, I think when I was 18, so that would be, you know, about 19 years ago now. So I, when I started playing shows, people could smoke in bars still, and that was one of the things I, you know, I hated it, but... I accepted it because it was a part of like, you know, playing shows and I like playing shows. I hated the fact that like, you know, I'm not a smoker. I'm not really, I don't smoke cigarettes. So it's like, well, I don't like smelling like, cause that's, that smell lingers on you. If you're around someone who smokes, like it's just on your clothes. It gets into everything. Like you have to pretty much immediately throw your clothes in the washing machine and then just hop right in the shower. Like, like that's the only, and then even still, like you'll feel it on your skin and in your hair and stuff for like a couple days after it's, it's gross. Um, but it was just sort of an accepted thing back then. And when I think back on it now, it's like, holy crap. Like I, I'm super used to, you know, not being accosted by someone smoking cigarettes inside, <laughs> you know, an inside space now. Like, and also like people just generally don't do that anymore at all. Like, mo- like even like, you know, what I have friends that, you know, still often on smoke here and there and you know, they'll all be very careful not to even smoke in their vehicles and things like that because they know how, you know, if they ever want to sell a vehicle, good luck. Like if you're, you know, if you smoke cigarettes in a vehicle or in a house or anything like that, it's like kind of just like that gets into the walls, that gets into the upholstery, it gets into everything. It's just, it, it makes everything feel gross. It, it can, and it can linger, and it's uh, a problematic thing to uh, try and get out. But, uh, you know, even look at vehicles. Uh, that went from, you know, probably uh, vehicles that your parents had when you were young, which had ashtrays, cigarette lighters, uh, yep. which, you know, would just be normal and common, uh, commonly accepted. Well, people are going to smoke in the car. They need somewhere to butt their cigarettes, uh, somewhere to butt out, and uh, a way to light it if they're driving, too. Like, you you could enable smoking and the lighting of a s- cigarette as you were driving thanks to car companies. Yeah. And that's the other crazy thing. I mean, I, I think I think it's probably worth noting not not to date ourselves too much, but younger people now if they're buying their first car, like I don't even think they're referred to as the cigarette lighter spots in the car anymore. Like I think it's just literally the DC the DC plug now. Yeah, the DC plug or like the 12 volt volt outlets uh, thing, which you still need a special port to plug into, of course, but. Yeah, but in our, like, I, when we were kids, you know, in our parents' cars, that was always the cigarette lighter. You know, you click it in, it gets hot, you know, it becomes basically, it's essentially like the same principle as like an oven, like uh, on the, like the, the stovetop of the oven, like, you know, the coil top stovetop, it just heats up and it just becomes a white hot piece of metal basically that you just put a cigarette onto and it just sparks it right up because it just immediately goes up that way. But that's what, that's what it used to be. And like, <laughs> if someone clicked that in and just kind of like dropped it in your car, it was like, Oh shit, big problem. <laughs> Whoops. Ah. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever been in a car where someone dropped that on their seat, it's always a calamity or it used to always be a calamity. Not a thing anymore. <laughs> no, and instead you can use uh, use that port to charge your phone or charge and run some other electronics. And that's what that port's main purpose is now. And it's just wacky to think that even in our lifetime, that's not what the main purpose of that port was. 
Like that's only shifted in the last 15 years, really. That, that's true. That's very true. And uh, I do recall because uh, my dad was a, a heavy smoker through all my life that uh, I think it was in, in one of his cars, one of his, uh, uh, his Camaros, he had, uh, because he would smoke, he had an ash that somehow flew back because he butt the, uh, uh, inflict the cigarette outside the window, of course, which only does so much. Uh, but yep. an ash just, uh, flew back in because of the wind and breeze through the window into the back seat and burned a small hole in the leather of his back seat. Yep. He was none too happy about that, but also there was nothing he could do because it was a self-inflicted damage to his car. Yeah. His own fault. <laughs> from, from smoking and, and smoking while driving. But. Yes. Uh, yeah, Madman was, uh, it's an interesting window into the 60s. Uh, just one very specific corner of the 60s. Yeah. Um, so far, we, I can recommend it. I mean, obviously, I'm late to the boat here. <laughs> it's like everyone, like th- this ship has already sailed. Everyone's already kind of given it all the awards. It's been well and over for over a decade now. But yeah, it's, we're not over a decade. I think it ended in 2015. Yeah, I mean, started, I think started like a decade ago, if not more. Yeah, but yeah, anyways, good show. I, (laughs) I, I enjoy it. Um, and it's, it's bananas. And it's also just crazy to see how, like, like, aside from the smoking and, you know, drinking, just the, the flagrant sexism that was just accepted and, you know, like that, that, that's bananas. I mean, and not to, not to even mention, like, you know, the the more overt racism and things like that. It's just it's wild. It's wild to just see some of that stuff. Like it's 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 crazy. It seems unbelievable to to look back and see some of those things uh, represented, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's not that long ago when you think about it. I mean, yeah, it's sixty years, but the grand scheme of things, that's like Don Draper and Betty Draper. They're supposed to, like they're the they're the same generation as our grandparents and our, like, like their children would be the same age as our parents. And my, when I say our, I mean Mike the Legend and myself, not, yes. not everyone listening to this. I mean, they, we are. We, we are of a generation and, uh, we, we tend to approach this podcast with the idea and thought that we attract people of similar age ranges, perhaps similar experiences. Uh, uh, they will pick up and key in on and enjoy some of the references we're dropping. So that's yes. who we're attracting. Yes. The older millennial or as Buzzfeed recently termed us, the geriatric millennial, which I'm, I'm sick of the shifting labels, by the way. It's getting really stupid. What do you like, want to call yourself? <sighs> Nothing, because I think the whole concept of labels is stupid, but I don't know. Older millennial, exennial, whatever is fine. Cusper. Cusper's revenge. <laughs> Which sounds like a terrible old PC game. Yep. Some sort of point-and-click adventure. Yes. <laughs> About the Civil War. Um, <laughs> anyways, we don't need to go there, but uh Yeah. Anyways, Bad Men. Yes, Bad Men. I watched uh, episodes here and there when it was uh, first run on AMC. You're coming around to it uh, now in this current day and age. Uh, it's on, I think, one of the services. There's too many yeah, it's, there. it's It's on Prime, Amazon Prime. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying you should sign up for Prime. I'm sure there's wink, wink, other means to find it. 
Yes, perhaps you know someone who's got the DVDs even, and you could uh, you could borrow them or Blu-rays or whatever the case might be. But uh, exactly, yes, uh, that is that. And uh, but that is something very old we are talking about. And instead, we'll try and get hip and with it and talk about what all the kids are talking about these days, uh, which of course is E3, the Electronics Entertainment. Expo just wrapped up a couple days ago. We, of course, recording uh, this program on the weekend, a few days after the event has concluded. I am saying event, but I'm trying to put air quotes around it because it's uh, E3, kind of a shell of its former self, especially taking the all-digital approach that this year's format was. Yes, and I think just as a little bit of a, a hot take, in terms of us regular folks, the general public, I honestly see no difference between this E3 format and the classic E3 format. Because for all of us, we look at it from afar anyways. And if it's just a matter of, you know, following whatever two, three, you know, gaming news sites that you follow just to get your news, you're going to get that anyways. And they're going to post the links to the videos. I mean, it's no different. So, is this the way that E3 should be from now on? Does it need to be a big excessive thing with a, you know, convention floor and everything? Well, these are questions that I'm sure are going to be asked going forward by the Entertainment Software Association. Uh, my, my kind of take on it, uh, here in the, uh, few days past wake of this year's all digital E3 being that there was really nothing special about E3 and taking the all digital approach. It very much made it in line with, uh, perhaps the, the Jeff Keighley Summers Game or Summer of Games Festival, the, uh, uh, or just Nintendo. The, the weird thing being that Nintendo releasing, uh, one of their Nintendo Directs during this week of E3 event, but also Microsoft releasing their own video to the web and several other companies releasing their own videos to the web. So uh, it was a decentralized approach to an event that was normally centralized in one location, one, you know, one area, one kind of point in time. It, it was a, a weird kind of disjointed uh, approach that uh, seemed incongruent in my mind. And for that reason, really detracted from the name and kind of aura that E3 has built up through the years, at least for people like you and I, who've kind of followed along with it uh, from afar for many years yeah, I mean, I remember growing up, it like in the game magazines, it always seemed like, you know, E3 would have been like this cool, amazing thing to go to because it's a huge crowd. You get to see, you get hands-on with all this new tech and new games first before they actually, you know, bef- before they're even finished, really. And, you mm-hmm. know, it really seemed always su- like such a cool potential um, thing. But, you know, as years gone as years go by and, you know, maybe it might be us getting older and just actually seeing it more for what it is, but also it's a combination of that with the fact that it actually has been physically scaled down more and more, especially with the proliferation of the internet. Plus, you know, this whole crazy COVID year that's happened has really, I think, crystallized or really solidified, I think, people's approaches in how to actually do this without all of the, you know, pomp and circumstance surrounding it while trying to still get their message out. I don't know. I I think the refocusing is kind of interesting. Like I do think there still is a place for a big kind of like, like I don't think 
the the big convention is a thing that should go away because you know it's it's an interesting you know social experience too. Just if you've never been to a big convention like that, it's kind of fun to go to at least once in your life. Um, plus, if you're part of any online communities and stuff, it's a good way to kind of um, get in contact with and like you know actually hang out with some people that you've known on the internet and stuff. Uh, but having said that, if the the primary focus of E3 is to just basically get the news out and make sure that, you know, major media outlets are covering it. They got their job done this year. This is true. And uh, perhaps in an easier manner without having all that uh, pomp and circumstance around it. Uh, But the, you know, you mentioned there at the start, E3 was always kind of this big thing. And in my mind, E3 has always, or for many years growing up, you know, following along with video games and seeing E3 in the game magazines and early internet and whatnot, and perhaps even TV shows, if there was any sort of news program doing a hit or some sort of story about E3, E3 was always built up to be the Super Bowl of video games. Yeah. There'd always be a, uh, an aura or just a sense of spectacle to the event that you had so many tens of thousands of people all converging on this one convention center in LA at the same time. You had big over the top booths for all the major companies. Anyone who's anyone in the games industry was there showing off the next, you know, big hit titles that uh, they were going to release, you know, that fall, that Christmas, the next year, whatever the case may have been. And it always just captured my imagination imagination for that big spectacle component. But without that big spectacle component this year, it was kind of like, oh, it's just companies releasing videos to the web under the banner of E3. But Nintendo has been doing this for years. Sony has taken to doing this in recent years. Uh, Microsoft, I'm sure, will do this in years that you know follow. So it's, uh, I don't know, it was kind of lacking. But at the same time, Without that crush of hundreds of other companies all basically shouting at the top of their, of, at the top of their lungs, as often happens with the big convention floor, or has happened, I should say, in years past with the big convention floor, it seemed like it was easier for all these big companies to get their messages out, but the companies getting their message out, it didn't always seem like there was a lot of substance or uh, a lot really noteworthy or kind of buzzworthy that came out from these uh, events or these digital events. You mean like in previous years or this year? No, I'm speaking of this year. Sorry, I should have clarified. But uh, this year's event and all the uh, uh, video releases, be it from Nintendo, be it from Microsoft, uh, some from Square Enix, and uh, we touched on a bit of what Ubisoft had to offer last episode as well, but it, uh, not the most overwhelming or buzzworthy uh, a year of uh, E3 releases or news or uh, uh, things of that nature. No, I mean, that, that's fair to say. There, Having said that, though, there were a couple of, like, kind of bigger pieces. I mean, we're, we'll be talking about mostly, you know, Nintendo and Microsoft and a little bit of miscellany this episode. But uh, I think the two big things that I took away from E3 this year were, um, well, just as a high-level overview before we get into anything, even the ludicrous leadoffs, just the new Metroid looks badass. And... That one new Final Fantasy game basically became sort of like meme plunder <laughs> because of the, the character, like p- people coming at it from a number of different directions. A stranger, 
what was it Stranger in Paradise? I think it was called. Uh, Stranger in Paradise, Stranger of Paradise, something like that. Stranger of Paradise, the 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 reimagined Final Fantasy One, which is basically using their modern game type engine, but more or uh, using a modern game engine where everything is full 3D and immersive and everything, but being more of an action RPG. But the main character, instead of looking, you know, like a 16 year old who whose outfit is made 80 percent of belts. He is, he, he looks more like, you know, a middle-aged person, like, you know, or, you know, not middle-aged, younger middle-aged, maybe like, you know, late thirties, mid forties kind of thing, who's basically wearing like, you know, a t-shirt <laughs> and he, like, it looks like he, you know, could have been like in, you know, an ex-marine 10 years ago or something maybe. And, you know, a, a t-shirt and some sensible pants. Yeah. Those are not some some tight uh, bone huggers uh, pansies rocking. The other two com- companions in the video, sure, but uh, Mister uh, Intense Main Character Guy. No, no, he's uh, he's taking a sensible pro- a sensible approach. You know, he's he needs uh, some clothing that can move with him as he moves, that can breathe, that can wick moisture away. That uh, you know is, is not really going to cling to him or restrict his movement. Yeah, he it's it's really just like you know he's he's bought a good you know pair of Wranglers and he's got, you know, he's got his, uh, you know, comfortable crew neck, you know, fruit of the loom or something like that. Mm-hmm. Cotton, you very know. soft cotton. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, breathable as you said. Uh, and yeah, but still has the gigantic cloud strife type sword, you know, <laughs> the big ludicrous oversized eight foot long sword that, you know, he still miraculously wields with one hand, even though, there was a, just as a other sidebar, at some point I saw, there was a YouTube channel, I don't remember what they're called, but they, their whole specialization is basically making, um, fantasy weapons. And he made the Buster Sword from Final Fantasy VII up to, you know, he figured out the, the actual proportions and stuff based on, you know, character profile in the, the instruction book for Final Fantasy VII of how tall Cloud Strife was supposed to be and how big the sword was in relation to him. And I think he figured out it was like seven foot two long and like, <laughs> it was like eight inches wide or something. And when he, he made it and it ended up weighing something stupid, like 260 pounds or something like that. So it's like, well, He's wielding this with one hand. How strong is Cloud? Holy crap. <laughs> but anyways, all of that aside, um, yeah, the other thing that be- became basically meme fodder for this video is, as you also pointed out when you watched it, is if you make a drinking game out of how many times the word chaos is said, you'll be wrecked by the end of the video. And it's oh. only two minutes long. Oh yeah, you'll be wrecked like it's a, uh, like it's a long-winded lo- a Mad Men meeting. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a lot. It does not really speak well to the writers on staff that Square Enix has behind this project, or the released for this, uh, initial trailer video, because overly simplistic, repeating some of the same words over and over, and, uh, makes the character look one-dimensional. Like they're, perhaps as you mentioned, of some sort of marine or soldier. Just straight ahead, I'm here to kill chaos, and that's their entire mission, and they are solely yes. focused on their mission to the point that's all they can say. I hate chaos. I'm here to kill chaos. I must stop chaos. Are you chaos? I need to stop you if you are chaos. Like, <laughs> okay, we, we get the point, buddy. You hate chaos. Great. <laughs> 
But anyways, that's just my high level. Basically, all I've gleaned from E3 this year, which is, to your point, yeah, kind of lackluster. Should have been more. Yeah, slightly uh, kind of lackluster. Now, I wonder how much of that is still the lingering impact of the pandemic uh, and the disruption uh, to release cycles, development cycles, or just the development process on the part of all the video game companies, especially the big ones, uh, who maybe just didn't have stuff ready enough to show off or uh, perhaps are holding off for later on in the year, uh, we didn't really see any of the uh, uh, big you know, titles we maybe were expecting. There wasn't the next Elder Scrolls shown off. We'll talk more, I'm sure, later on in the show about that. But there wasn't the, uh, the next Metroid Prime shown off. Uh, there was a little bit shown off for the next Breath of the Wild game, but uh, not that much, although it was given a, a 2022 release window. Uh, but not a whole lot entirely shown off about that. Doesn't even have a title yet. Although apparently Nintendo yeah. has, uh, Doug Bowser, the head of Nintendo of America, has said that the reason it doesn't have a title yet is because the title will actually give some stuff away about the game. So they're not ready to name it yet. So fair enough, but, uh, yeah. It's, it's like, uh, just pick, pick, all I have to say to that is pick a better title. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Just, anyways, go on. But, uh, so, so there, there were some good things. Uh, I mean, no E3 is totally a write-off where just nothing good came out of it or nothing worthwhile came out of it. It's all a matter of, of proportion, scale, and perspective. And compared to years past where perhaps we had all three big companies doing some sort of presentation, uh, releasing, perhaps it would be a year that a new system is being released or something to that nature. There'd be mention of that, excitement uh, and buzz around that in the industry. Not so much this year, even less so with Sony not being present in any form at this year's digital-only event. Uh, I'm sure they'll release a video, uh, their own state of play digital video later on this year. But uh, also could be because there's the companies are still having trouble, at least Sony and Microsoft are having trouble getting their consoles into people's hands. That's still an ongoing problem. They sure are, and uh, it's crazy supply issues still. Crazy supply issues that have no end in sight either. Yeah, well, I mean, what I've basically been heard, like what I've heard across the board, basically in any term and any type of computer-related thing, is basically the pandemic has basically wreaked havoc on the microchip industry. So there's been massive microchip shortages across the board. So it's not just um, the PlayStation and Xbox that have been affected by this, but anyone that needs microchips, basically, unfortunately. So I guess I kind of get it, but it, it's still it's it's it stings a bit when you're seeing stuff. You know, you're trying to you know move forward with the next console generation, and you literally can't get it into people's hands because you don't have the supply to do it. It's been kind of a dismal year all around, I think. Absolutely. And uh, even if you went into this year's E3 looking forward to Nintendo's video release, perhaps as a time when the company would show off something uh, to do with or some discussion related to a new model of the Nintendo Switch, 
you walked away disappointed because there was nothing to do with a new model of the Switch talked about in Nintendo's video. Even prior to that, you and I spoke on this program with, uh, or spoke about news articles from both Bloomberg and Eurogamer saying that the expectation was Nintendo would unveil the Switch Pro prior to E3 so that way they could focus on software only at the event. Well, half that's true. They did focus on software only at this year's event, but there was no such Switch Pro announced prior to. And again, I'm wondering how much of that is due to the microchip shortage, the supply chain issues, the production issues of companies wanting to crank out electronics when there's only so many factories to do so and everyone's bogged down. Like, the crazy bottleneck issues from the pandemic still. Yeah. But that being all said, some news did come out of it, and even from this year's E3, we got an E3-related ludicrous leadoff, which doesn't always happen at these E3 events. No, it doesn't. Um, and this is kind of a... It, it's I, I want to say it's a continuation <laughs> of a ridiculous joke that started last E3, was it? Uh, if not uh, before that, because there was no E3 last year, but uh, uh, through the course of, of last year, too, with the uh, when the design of the Xbox Series X was shown off, a lot of people took to calling it a fridge, because it resembled a fridge. Yeah. And so then that was a joke that uh, the internet kind of ran with, uh, it being vertically oriented, that it looked like a fridge, and then Microsoft kind of played it up in some, I think, pre- uh, console release videos and hype videos that they actually made a, a standing working full-size refrigerator that was styled after an Xbox Series X. And they even shot some videos with, I think, Snoop Dogg where he got a uh, an Xbox Series X fridge and things like that. But the ludicrous lead-off from this year's E3 came from Microsoft's presentation where they closed off their video, their digital presence, their digital event. They closed it off in, in a slot that is normally the big, uh, the, the big fireworks spectacle at the end, the, the high note you're going out on, the moment you want to leave audiences gasping and shocked and surprised with and, and generate so much buzz afterward. They use that slot to unveil and show off an Xbox Series X mini fridge. Yes. A mini fridge that you can buy, granted. It, yes, it's it's a going to be a tangible home appliance available later on this year, but an Xbox Series X styled mini fridge. And it looks like the Xbox Series X. It stands vertically. It has a door that opens and appears to be able to hold upwards of 10 cans of an energy drink of your choosing, of course. But a mini fridge. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it went from a joke to now being a real tangible product. Has the joke become sad now that it's becoming a tangible product? Or, or does the joke just become enhanced with this be, uh, this now becoming a tangible product? This is one of those weird jokes where I actually can't decide. Is it so clever or is it too clever that it's not clever enough? I, where does it go with this? Well, <clears throat> to quote, um, you know, the, the perennially funny, the, the ever, the never not funny, um, classic comedy, this is spinal tap. 
there's a fine line between clever and stupid. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if this is crossing the line or if it's just on the line or if it's like, I don't know if, if like, you know how movies can go so bad they're like get, when they're so bad, they become enjoyable again because they kind of loop back around in that weird way. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if this is a thing that can also loop back in a similar way. Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's very weird and, um, I don't really know how to react to it. So I'm just, I'm almost not going to. It, it, it's, that's how befuddling it is. It, it's almost leaving you at a loss for words. Yeah. So, so this, what might seem like a, a brilliant, clever slash stupid idea on the part of Microsoft is actually a continuation of something that started earlier this year in, uh, of, in all things, a, a Twitter poll war that, uh, I think was being run by Twitter itself to determine which company had the strongest brand or was the most favored brand on Twitter, ultimately required just a fan vote and Microsoft was uh, up against Skittles in the final. And in order to generate votes and get people to turn out to vote in this Twitter poll for whatever reason, uh, some of the heads at Microsoft decided, uh, or sorry, it was actually Aaron Greenberg, who's the general manager of Xbox marketing, put it out there on Twitter that if uh, people were to vote in favor and uh, get Microsoft to win this Twitter poll war, then the company would make and release Xbox mini fridges, like Xbox Series X mini fridges. And the company ended up winning the Twitter poll war and voila, the Xbox Series X styled mini fridge was shown off in the last slot of Microsoft's uh, presentation at E3 this year, their digital release event at this year's E3. The fridge itself, as I said, appears to hold upwards of 10 ish energy drink cans. Uh, it, it does not look that big. It is not going to do a whole lot. Uh, perhaps it's best suited for s- small game rooms, uh, uh, dorm rooms, something of that nature, perhaps a garage. Uh, maybe you could fit it and take it camping. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a good size for a camper trailer, something like that, but it is not that big. Uh, it is still set to release later this year. Apparently, coming to stores just in time for Christmas. However, we do not know how much it's going to cost. But uh, chances are you'll have a way easier finding one than you will an actual Microsoft um, Xbox Series X. Yes, I am uh, I am certain you'll be able to uh, get one of these fridges ahead of an Xbox Series X. Or don't- perhaps... How ironic would it be if the, the supply chain issues are similar and, uh, <laughs> similar and different where it's a pain in the ass to try and find an Xbox Series X mini fridge as well as an Xbox Series X console? Is, are you thinking because they're, the thing we don't know about this mini fridge is also that it's one of these connected smart home mini fridge devices <laughs> where it's got like a screen on it and everything and it's just connected to the internet of things? <laughs> Damn, why do we have to put microchips in everything? Seemed a good idea at the time. Yeah, like we wanted to, we wanted to have a screen that displays how many drinks you have in the fridge. You don't have to actually open the fridge. It's like, well, then why? 
Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Have you seen, in that vein, I have to bring this up. Uh, speaking of fridges, uh, a commercial I've seen on uh, broadcast television recently is for a new series of LG smart home appliances. Perhaps you've seen it as well. Either you, uh, uh, Dennis, of the changing nickname, or you, the listeners out there of this program, perhaps you have seen it as well. And, and it makes me roll my eyes, and I, I cry a little for humanity inside every time it, I, I see it across my screen. But the ad is for... An LG series of smart home appliances, particularly one I've seen focus, uh, is focused on the new LG smart home fridge, which has, it's a dual door, uh, I guess, yeah, double-sided fridge. So one side's your fridge, one side's your freezer. So the side that is your fridge has a black panel on the front of it. The rest of it is all pretty much stainless steel to make it look all fancy and classy and charge more accordingly. But this black panel on the fridge side of this smart fridge door. The people in the commercial are shown knocking twice on the black panel of this fridge door, and the panel then illuminates and basically becomes like a window to show you what's inside your fridge. Yeah, I've I've seen those fridges in real life, and I'm not for it. I mean, I understand where they're coming from. On the one hand, it's like, fine... It is a waste of energy to open the fridge just to see what's in the fridge. Fine. I don't think the solution is like a whole series of cameras inside a fridge as well as a screen on the outside to show you just to basically mimic a window (laughs) just so you could get it just so it goes dark after and looks like, you know, uniform with the rest of the fridge. I don't know if that's the solution. Call me crazy, but I don't... Like, I don't know, like, when if that ever stops working, you're back to it just being a regular fridge anyways, so. That seems like an over-engineered solution to the problem of we got to get people to stop holding the door open as they look to see if they have mustard. Yeah. Like, that is an over-engineered solution to a very small, simple problem. Also, the great irony being that if it is to act as a deterrent uh, from, and to deter to deter people from opening the fridge and holding it open as they scan what's in their fridge, what items they have, what they might need, what they want for supper, the yada, 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 uh, to prevent the release of the uh, the coldness inside, which then the fridge has to regenerate and re- recuperate, with which uses electricity. The display system on these smart fridges also uses electricity. Yep. For the camera, for the display device, or the lighting inside as well, because the lights inside the fridge come on when you double tap and double knock on the uh, on the screen of this fridge I saw in the commercial. So electricity is being used. It is not an entirely powerless solution. So the hell? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the argument obviously being that, you know, opening the fridge, there's more like physical... Like the, the refrigerant and everything, pumping the refrigerant and stuff, there's like, there's no real way to make that any more efficient. So like opening the fridge and closing it, you're wasting all that cold air and blah, blah, blah. Whereas screens are pretty efficient now. Like, like they don't really take a lot of power to turn on and off, I guess. So I guess there's that reasoning there, but yeah. It also I, just strikes me as just another part that can break and fail in your fridge. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that's my whole sense I get from it. So, 
Yeah, it's not, uh, it, yeah. Feels like it's a solution to a problem that I didn't know existed. Yeah, uh, same here. Although once these Xbox Series X mini fridges come out, I can't wait to see the, the home hackers and the home builders, uh, uh, get their hands on them and turn them into, uh, ridiculously, uh, cooled, uh, uh, console houses and console bodies for the guts of an Xbox Series X. <laughs> or just, you know, their own gaming PC. Uh, their own gaming PC, whatever the case might be. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the Xbox Series X mini fridge as a TLDR coming this, uh, this fall, uh, possibly ahead of Christmas. That is the targeted release on the part of Microsoft. We'll see. No guarantees because, uh, uh supply chains still a problem, still so mucked up. But let us move off from that into some of the other bigger releases and news items to come out of this year's all-digital format, E3, uh, Nintendo. Uh, according to some surveys I saw, or, or some research I saw, Nintendo generated the most uh, viewership with their E3 Direct video that was released on Tuesday morning. I think at their peak, uh, from the research I saw, they did about... Uh, 3.1, if not 3.3 million viewers, whereas for the Microsoft slash Bethesda, uh, digital release that generated two something, maybe 2.3, 2.5 million viewers. So obviously, uh, we can say based on that fact alone, Nintendo, the clear winner of this year's E3, hands down. Um, yep. Which I think in, in the past couple of years, when there were E3s, you and I have uh, kind of realized the absurdity of crowning and people declaring, uh, one company was the clear victor over others. There, there's, even, even ourselves, you and I, we've gotten out of that in past E3s. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, these are companies, like, it's not really about who wins. I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> winning just means you got more, you know, screen time basically is all it is. And you got more of a reaction for the screen time, good or bad, I guess. Like, yeah, hopefully the, good. The, the fandom community declaring one company the victor over the other is a bit absurd these days because uh, each uh, company has their own built-in fan base and uh, some will perhaps be more boisterous uh, or boisterous than the others. But regardless, each company had some good things to show, some some perhaps less than uh yeah, or some some meh things to show, but uh, we'll talk about some of the bigger ones from both Nintendo and Microsoft, and we'll start with Nintendo here, because they generated the most viewership, so they won that uh, right by virtue of more eyeballs. So Nintendo, the big takeaway, as we said, from their conference was the news of an all-new 2D side-scrolling Metroid game, this one called Metroid Dread, and this one coming out this year, slated for release on October 8th, for the Nintendo Switch, it is being released by Nintendo, but being developed by a company called Mercury Steam, who are the studio that worked on a previous Metroid game, that being Metroid Samus Returns. Metroid Samus Returns was released for the 3DS, basically in its late, late in the 3DS lifecycle, and was just a uh, remake of Metroid 2 from the uh, Game Boy. So a yep. lot, a lot to take in about this Metroid Dread game. It is billed as a direct sequel to Metroid Fusion. And even when the trailer for this first fired up, it was labeled as Metroid 5. And the, some of the developers behind this and producers behind it have said that this will be the conclusion of this, I guess, initial mainline Metroid, uh, and Samus Aran story. The interesting yeah. story of Samus and the Metroids. 
which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I thought it looked really cool. Like, not gonna lie, like, I, I was really kind of hyped up to see, like, the, like, the art style and everything. Like, yeah, it's in 3D, but it actually looks like it handles, like, Super Metroid, basically. Like, in some ways faster and more fluid even, which is kind of very exciting to me. Um, but yeah, the, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of like forget about the mainline Metroid thing ever since Metroid Prime came out. That sort of replaced, you know, what people thought of in terms of Metroid in the, you know, in the main public consciousness. But let's not forget Metroid was originally this. <laughs> so it's cool that they're actually looking at wrapping it up finally. And I or- will put my hand up and I will acknowledge I am guilty of that, uh, of that forgetfulness. You know, I just yeah. kind of figured that uh, Metroid Prime became the mainline Metroid series uh, from that series of games, the three of them from the GameCube onto the Wii. And then there was Metroid Other M, which, of course, is best left unspoken about. But, uh, yeah, I'm guilty of that because when this trailer first fired up and said Metroid 5, I was like, what? But we, they haven't shown anything for Prime 4 yet. How are they? Oh, wait, they're different. And then, yes, I did like 30 seconds of, of Googling and reading on Wikipedia that, oh yes, uh, the main Metroid series has mostly been on handheld, like was mostly on the Game Boy. Yeah. Because it was Metroid 1 on the NES, Metroid 2 was on Game Boy, Super Metroid apparently counts as Metroid 3. Yep. Then it was Metroid Fusion, which counts as Metroid 4, and then this one, uh, Metroid Dread, which is counting as Metroid 5. So... So there are chapters in there you may not have realized are part of the main Metroid series because, yeah, they, they were on handheld. And but also be, not specifically labeled Metroid 3, Metroid 4. But to be fair, like, I, I also didn't, like, I didn't realize that they were, I didn't realize that, you know, Metroid Prime wasn't technically part of a mainline series either because, yeah, it, it's kind of been a badly named series. I mean, it went Metroid 1, Metroid 2 on different systems, but then Super Metroid, they kind of did, like, as you said, they threw that out the window. And then I kind of figured Metroid Prime was where they were picking up after that because it's the next big Metroid game on a home console. Like, you know, you Mm -hmm. you kind of figure the home console releases are going to be the mainline entries, right? And I just figured Metroid Prime. But then, you know, I didn't really clue in when I saw Metroid Prime 2 and Metroid Prime 3, thinking anything weird about that. I just kind of figured it's like, oh, they just changed the art style to be, you know, first person shooter. Now they're just continuing on with that. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it is, it's exciting. And I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't, you know, intrigued by this. Uh, I'll, I'll be picking this game up for sure. Like pretty much as soon as it comes out, I think. Now in this one, it, uh, a lot of the baddies that uh, are, uh, or, it seems like the big baddie is, has nothing initially to do with, uh, the, the, uh, the Metroids, anything to do with Mother Brain, anything like that. It is a, uh, big, uh, perpetually chasing you after, uh, perpetually chasing you unkillable robot named Emmy or E-M-M-I. And of course, uh, following up with the release, uh, for this trailer of Metroid Dread, Metroid also, or, Nintendo, I should say, uh, I believe put out a press release announcing that there's going to be Amiibos to go along with this Metroid Dread game. It'll be a two-pack, one of Samus in her suit from this Metroid Dread, as well as the robot itself, M-E-E-M-M-I. 
And from what I've read, both of them or the, the Metro or the Samus figurine will bestow some health upgrades and, uh, to your character in the game, whereas the robot amiibo will bestow some missile upgrades to your character in the game. So that's cool. But yeah, apparently this is going to be the conclusion of the Samus Aran and Metroid's storyline before it just kind of starts a new chapter in the future. Perhaps that new chapter is, I don't know, bouncing off Metroid Prime 4, who's, who's to say, but, uh, if you were expecting Metroid Prime 4 to be shown off in this event, uh, there was mention that work is still being done on it, done on it, and that's it. That's all it got was just a passing mention. Yeah, which I mean, it's maybe even more than they needed to say, but, like, I mean, they could have just checked off, you know, the Metroid hype check mark with this one, <laughs> you know, leave people wondering about Metroid Prime 4, I guess, but the fact that they did say, yes, it's still being worked on is, I guess, fair enough. There's enough people that are kind of wondering, so, okay. Yeah, and I, I, I perhaps, we, I, I think we should say that uh, expectations for Metroid Prime 4 and when it would be released should perhaps be tempered, given that the company had to start from the ground up again development on the game with a whole new developer and a whole new staff. Yeah. So it's still going like, to be a couple of years. Yep. Bear that in mind. So Metroid Dread, I think, stands out easy enough to say as the big title, uh, big surprise title that uh, got a lot of people excited from the Nintendo event. Uh, although Nintendo did conclude their video event with uh, uh, showing off more footage of the Breath of the Wild sequel, which is still called Sequel to Breath of the Wild. Uh, we saw footage, a bit more gameplay footage too, and it looks like uh, one of Link's appendages, one of his arms, is going to uh, be infected, possessed, uh, call it whatever you might, but uh, Link uh, himself is going to have some different powers and abilities that don't require the use of a special tool. It's just something he'll innately be able to do with his arm just right there. Kind of think, uh, I, I'm thinking back to Adventure Time with, uh, with Yes, Finn. exactly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's just, I'm getting a lot of Adventure Time vibes from that. But like, you know, I would imagine that, you know, in typical Zelda fashion, he'll probably still figure out new ways to use his wacky, um, crazy infected arm, you know, in each new dungeon, like he'll figure out new quote unquote tools. So the mechanic is probably still going to be there, I imagine. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting different take. Interesting different take, and uh, also, too, what we saw in this trailer for sequel to Breath of the Wild is that there's a lot more verticality, a lot more uh, floating islands in the sky, and uh, a lot of scenes of uh, Link falling through the sky as well, through the clouds, yeah. without a parachute, which uh, I'm led to believe is very dangerous. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've never done it myself, and nor will I ever try, but yeah, it, it seems a little crazy to me. So we still don't have any sort of firm information, again, about the title of the next Breath of the Wild game. Uh, and the release window we got from Nintendo for it is simply 2022. Yeah. There's 365 days in 2022, so take a pick. <laughs> uh, any of them are as uh, as good as the others at this point, but... Uh, 
if you were a, if you weren't aware that this year marks the 35th anniversary of the Legend of Zelda franchise, then Nintendo didn't really do a lot with their presentation to remind you of that fact either. Only taking a small portion of time to uh, show off a a new take slash way to rehash a Game & Watch device, but uh, they are releasing a Legend of Zelda-themed Game & Watch device this November uh, to commemorate the 30th, 35th anniversary of the Legend of Zelda franchise, and that seems to be all they're doing for the anniversary of the Legend <laughs> of Zelda franchise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it looked kind of interesting, but, you know... We're living in an age now where do we really need, you know, these single purpose? I mean, I, I guess I'm saying this now, like, do we, do we need single purpose devices like this that are just, you know, a screen with a couple of little, that can just serve a couple of different very narrow functions now? I mean, we're, we already have, like, we're living in the age of like crazy smartphones and smartwatches and things like that now. Like this harkens back to, you know, the times of like the Tiger Electronics games, which I'm kind of glad we're past. <laughs> yeah, those were, uh, there was a lot of those very simplistic, very not good digital games or not even digital, yeah. just physical games. Yeah. Cause it was just literally like, I would call them calculator games because the screens had like were basically set up like calculators where there's only so many combinations of things on them. The game and watches themselves back in the day were a variant of that very thing. And I think they even make reference to that, that, you know, in this game and watch device, there's going to be that, you know, a, a simulation of what looks to be a legend of Zelda type game and watch game. I doubt that they actually had one of those <laughs> since Legend of Zelda came out for the Nintendo entertainment system, which was out way after the game and watch games were, you know, a thing of the past. So yeah, but I mean, if it's an interest, if it's of interest to you, it'll be out in November, November 12th, apparently. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So with it, you get, uh, the original Legend of Zelda, uh, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, as well as the Game Boy version of Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. So three Legend of Zelda games, as well as, uh, some other nifty features. As you mentioned, the, uh, the Game and Watch version of Vermin with Link as the, uh, the character. And also there's a timer slash, I think, clock that, uh, you can manipulate and play around with will be in different scenes from some of the old Zelda games, which is, okay, it's neat. But it's uh, an electronic tchotchke. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an electronic bric-a-brac. Cool. Yep. That seems wasteful to me. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is just us getting older and, you know, really seeing the impact of some of this stuff, but couldn't this have just been a phone app? <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, like I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be tongue in cheek about this or anything. Couldn't this have just been a phone app? I'd pay a couple bucks for a Zelda game and watch phone app. I mean, do yeah. I need another device in my pocket? Like, I already have an iPhone in my pocket. Like, do I really need this? Like, come on. A phone app or, or some sort of uh, uh, premium or free release through the Switch Online. Yeah, something like that. Like, <laughs> there's already form factors for these things. Like, 
unless you're going to do it as like some extremely limited, you know, collector's edition release thing. Anyways, that <laughs> editorializing aside, that that is a thing. So, so it comes out November twelfth. Uh, Metroid Dread comes out October eighth. But this next game we're going to talk about that was shown off for the first time during the Nintendo Direct uh, from the, a couple days ago comes out on September tenth, and it is something both you and I are actually very excited about. It's a franchise that will be making its debut on the Nintendo Switch. It is WarioWare coming to the Switch in a new game called WarioWare. Get it together. And I'm actually really unreasonably excited about this prospect. Yes. Well, if if anyone's ever played any WarioWare games in the past, they're really fun games to just kind of like hang out and pass a controller around and just, you know, have a quick round doing a goofy thing because they're, it's just, it's fast-paced, goofy, insane mini-games. You know, that aren't played like regular video games. They're just goofy, like 10 second long experiences, really, that you could, you know, you're, you're given like a very quick prompt and you have like a second to figure out what to do with your hands, basically. And then once you figure it out, you're like, Oh, I can do this real quick. Okay. Hey, I passed it. Great. And they're always insane. Like, Oh, brush this guy's teeth. How do I? Oh, okay. <laughs> or like, you know, <laughs> you know like you know, shave off this guy's back or something like seriously, like I'm not even making this up. It's like mow this lawn, fry this egg, these kind of wacky things. It's like, okay. But I think that the thing that you know, cracked both Mike, the legend and myself up the most was on the old Wii version of this game. I think it was called, uh, WarioWare. Oh, what was it called again? WarioWare just ink or something like that. Uh, Something like that. It, I, I remember the case being all uh, just bright pink and uh, S- smooth moves. Smooth moves. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. So it, it was called Warrior Smooth Moves. And the, the thing that cracked both of us up about it was they they had this thing called um, – well, the, the way that they used the Wii remote was that, you know, they, they introduced different um, forms for the Wii remote. So like – Games would use different form factors or form batons, sorry. They, they called it the form baton and you had to hold it in a certain way. And each way that you held it was given a different name. And every time they introduced a new form for the form baton, it had like this like super serene, like it was in the, in the midst of all this chaos that was happening in the WarioWare game, there would be this nice little serene title card come up with Basically, the only way I can explain it is a Jack Handy deep thoughts type narration where there would be a guy explaining, like, it's just kind of a Jack Handy type voice. Like, um, just look up Jack Handy deep thoughts on YouTube. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it was like a pretty great Kevin Nealon bit, I believe. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. it was funny. Like the way that the voice said things was really funny, and they were just like ridiculous. Like hearing someone say some of the things that was written on the screen with a straight face was hilarious. Like I remember one of the form factors was the mortar and pestle, and it was just always something like the mortar and pestle, and it was like you know this like nice ambient kind of piano in the background, and like very calm and serene. You see like a nice like subdued black and white watercolor in the background with like, you know, some drawing of how your hand should be holding the thing. And it was just calm for a second. It was just, here's how you do this thing. (laughs) And it was so funny. 
So I'm, I'm curious, like, what they're going to do like that with this game. Like, I'm not expecting the same thing again, but I am expecting it to be funny. Yeah, that's kind of one of the hallmarks of the WarioWare franchise through the years is that it's just funny. Like, truly enjoyably funny and is one of those rare Nintendo franchises that has a lot of humor to it. And humor as a pillar of the franchise experience. Yes. So this one called Get It Together, as I said, coming out September 10th. Uh, one of the uh, uh, new gameplay mechanics seems to be uh, two-player simultaneous. Now, I don't know if that's co-op. I don't know if that's competitive or just uh, whatever the case might be, but two players doing the, the task at the same time. And it appears from the trailer that the characters uh, that populate the universe of uh, WarioWare will be doing the tasks on screen and they'll each have their own special abilities to do stuff with. So uh, an interesting idea. But uh, again, September 10th is when that comes out. So very excited for that. But, uh, you know, I found it also too very interesting that uh, some of the franchises that Nintendo was revisiting kind of got their start on the Game Boy Advance, which we spoke of on last episode, turned 20 years old. And so Nintendo, kind of going back to the well, WarioWare has had a number of iterations through the years on different Nintendo platforms, but this next franchise that Nintendo showed off during their direct event really has not gotten much love since the uh, GameCube Game Boy Advance days, that being Advance Wars, and Nintendo showed off that they're actually doing a reboot of the first two games in a title that is appropriately called Advance Wars 1 and 2 Reboot Camp. <laughs> okay. Kind of clever. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll admit, you know, I I I missed the boat on a lot of these games cuz I didn't have a Game Boy Advance myself and a lot of them looked interesting, but you know, like I never really wanted to be tied to a a mobile device <laughs> just to be playing like, you know, more long in-depth strategy games and stuff. So, I think re-releasing it for the Switch, great opportunity to revisit some of these games that, you know, I don't want to crane my neck on, you know, anymore for, you know, a tiny screen like that. So. Oh, absolutely. I fully understand that. Uh, because with the Advance Wars series, it was Nintendo's attempt at doing RTS. Yeah. D- doing real time strategy games, which I haven't really seen them do outside of the Advance Wars franchise. So if, if you enjoy those old games or perhaps are looking to, in Dennis's case, uh, pick them up anew for the first time. Uh, Advance Wars 1 and 2 Reboot Camp comes out on December 3rd, which, all right, neat idea. It's uh, new graphical styling, but some of the old gameplay mechanics, storylines and whatnot, characters. But uh, yeah, and there was actually a new Mario Party game shown off, which I, I put new in quotation marks with that because it's kind of more like a Greatest Hits collection. The title of this yeah, which is, I think is Mario Party Superstars. Yeah, I, I think this game, it, it was kind of exciting for me because, you know, the thing with Mario Party is there were aspects to all of the games that I remember liking, but not not all of the games were great. You know, like there was also aspects of a lot of the games where it's like, ah, this is kind of a crappy game. So or kind of crappy mini game selection here, good mini game selection here. So it is cool that they're going to be bringing together some of like the most well-loved best mini games together in one collection. Cause yeah, Super Mario or sorry, Mario Party always was, I think a good time for, you know, it, for literally like when you have a bunch of friends over and you just want to, you know, all hang out and basically it's, a, 
if you're not playing a real board game, like it's a pretty good almost board game, you know, so, um, yeah. Uh, um, some of the, uh, some of the, uh, uh, mini games that were shown off, uh, I believe they're all kind of pulling from the N64 era, but the one that stands out to me is, uh, this Mario Party Superstars is going to have the face stretching game, I believe, from the first Mario Party game. Ah. Uh, the facelift mini game where you actually had to manipulate a, uh, character's face, uh, by, by clicking, grabbing, and stretching to make it look as the, uh, uh, and resemble the, the computer deemed one that, uh, you'd, uh, start off the, the mini game with. Uh, so it, uh, if you'll recall back to the N64, uh, and Super Mario 64, how you could manipulate and, and stretch, grab and stretch Mario's face. It was that. It was that, yes. I I also think, like, well, based on what I've saw, you know, from a couple of memes around on, you know, the social media, uh, my understanding is that one or more of those old N64 minigames that would require you to basically mash the analog stick around and around and around in a circle would be coming back. And, you know, the meme attached that I saw where it's just like, you know, Finally, kids of this generation will get to know this pain, and they showed basically just like you know a drawing of someone with a bleeding palm of their hand <laughs> because they were just mashing the controller too much, which definitely happened back then. Yeah, you. It was very easy to get a, a blister in the palm of your hand if you were having to do that tug of war mini game way too many times. Yep, which required you to rotate the joystick in the middle of the N sixty four controller. As fast and as many times as you could. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where I do recall reading in a Nintendo Power magazine from that era that you could actually actually send away to Nintendo and receive uh, special gloves to use for those <laughs> mini games that looked like a golf glove, but only had the uh, the ring and pinky fingers kind of cut off, but still had yeah. like, coverings for the the index and middle finger and then of course all through the palm as well but yeah so you would not get the the burn and blister in the middle of your palm i do remember that i also seem to remember something involving you know some some discounted rate at on controller replacements or controller repairs because like they were finding that you know some of those games were causing people to like wear out their analog sticks Oh yes, if not outright break the analog stick sometimes too. Yeah. Which, which, what, it sounds crazy to say, but yes, that is what was happening back then. We were harder on our electronics back in those days. Yeah, well, I, we were also encouraged to be harder on our electronics by games like this, so, you know. <laughs> so it wasn't all us. We weren't just, uh, you know, rowdy, no good nicks from the time. We were just trying to win the goddamn minigame, so. Uh, but this greatest hits collection of Mario Party mini games and some of the, some of the board, uh, some of the boards specifically from, uh, the initial couple N64 Mario Party games is coming in the form of Mario Party Superstars that releases on October 29th. So a, a, a goodish selection, a goodish, uh, uh, assortment of, uh, some, some kind of B, maybe C list, uh, Titles like the new WarioWare's in September. Um, this Mario Party Superstars is end of October. You've got Advance Wars in early December. The big title, of course, being Metroid Dread. That's October eighth. So Nintendo kind of fleshing out their fall release. Plus, there's the Pokemon 
uh, Diamond and Pearl re, uh, remasters coming in November as well. So, yeah, it's a, a goodish, uh, goodish lineup of games for Nintendo come the fall. Yeah, I think so. So it's, uh, th- that's a good assortment of, of games that so, some of which took us by surprise, uh, some of which we didn't expect to see, but, uh, Microsoft on the other hand kind of had a lineup of good titles, but some of them we were expecting to see and then did see, uh, the big one being, uh, at, that was shown off in the joint conference between Microsoft and Bethesda. First time that's happened because Bethesda now fully consumed and absorbed into the body that is Microsoft. Uh, but Bethesda showed off Starfield. Yeah, their highly anticipated Starfield, which is um, their, I guess, Bethesda's response to the Outer Worlds, maybe like the the outer, their outer, basically Fallout or El- or Elder Scrolls, but in outer space instead of you know in you know medieval times and or um, post apocalyptic times. <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, so so we got a. The, the trailer didn't really show much of what was shown off uh, for Starfield. No, it really didn't. So it's a it's more than what we got of that first announcement teaser a couple of years ago, which was literally just a craft moving through space. Uh, this is a craft on the surface of a planet as uh, a person is getting ready to take off on a mission. It's set and you in- see a. You saw a little bit of a crew on the ship too. Yeah, a little bit of crew. It's a sparse crew, only maybe one or two people. Yeah, it's not like a big uh, Federation starship or anything like that. It's not like the no. Enterprise D or anything like that. Uh, but uh, it's still for a game that's set in the future, like twenty something. I don't know, maybe like fifty to seventy years in the future. Uh, the tech and uh, experience and just the aesthetic of the ship and everything. Looks still very much like this current time. It didn't look as advanced as perhaps I was expecting a piece of sci-fi to look with a starship. Yeah. A little bit strange. A little bit strange, but uh, we do know at least when it's going to come out. And that is November 11th, 2022. Uh, Todd Howard and the rest of the team at Bethesda taking the bold position to announce not just a release window, but a release day and date. November 11th, 2022. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that there's a very good chance between now and then that the release date moves, even just by a week or two. Because, holy crap, who takes such a uh, uh, bold stance as to stake out a day and date like a year and change away from your product being finished and released to the masses. But I can see them doing this because, you know, I also know that Todd Howard is a sucker for, you know, a very nice looking date and 11, 11, 22 is a nice looking date. Um, Skyrim's release date was, I believe 11, 11, 11. I can see that. I'm just verifying that. I'm just I, verifying that right now. Nine. Yeah, it was 11, 11, 11. So, okay. um, exactly 10 years after Skyrim's release. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I'm not super surprised by the date. Um, I can see it possibly moving, but guaranteed they're going to work as hard as they possibly can to make that specific release date. And because they're Bethesda, let's face it, there's going to be, (laughs) 
it's going to be buggy as hell when it comes out anyways. <laughs> it's going to require, let's just say, a fair amount of work and patches and everything over the course of the following three months after the release of the game. I mean, everyone kind of, you know, uh, was giving CD Projekt Red shit for Cyberpunk 20, you know, 77. But, like, let's not forget, Bethesda's also notorious for this as well. They just, you know, also have enough goodwill built up for, you know, several years because of, like, a lot of the games that they put out and stuff and a lot of the nostalgia people have for them. But they're, um, <laughs> they're going to be no stranger to buggy games. So I, I would say, like, the fact that, you know, it's probably going to be released. Like, I'm, I'm 80% certain it's going to be released on this day for better or for worse. Just because of the date. Just so they can make the date, because Todd Howard likes the aesthetic of that date. Yes, exactly. Does that not seem batshit crazy? Oh, it it is. But have you seen Todd Howard? <laughs> Fair. Yes. Okay. Good point. Uh, yeah. Which I guess he doesn't really need our commentary uh, about this, considering he's, uh, I'm sure, making some sweet stacks of cash and taking it to the bank. What with Bethesda's, you know, being bought out by Microsoft for seven billion dollars. Yep. He, uh, I'm sure, gets a good, a good amount of change for that. But Starfield, the other uh, point worth noting here, when it releases on eleven eleven twenty two in whatever state will release exclusively on the PC as well as Xbox X or Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S. Uh, it will also be available via the Xbox Game Pass for streaming on, you know, whatever platforms. But yes, as a uh, console and platform release, only on PC, only on the Xbox Series X slash X or X slash S, excuse me. So... In the wake of that announcement, there were some other, I believe, PR people and uh, uh, presidents from Bethesda who kind of had to do the rounds and try to uh, smooth over some hurt feelings on the part of uh, PlayStation owners and PlayStation fans. And uh, uh, I believe there was an article I came across on Kotaku. Unfortunately, I don't have it pulled up in front of me. But the gist of what I read was that this person from Bethesda had to go around and smooth things over and was apologizing for the fact that this game Starfield is going to be exclusive to the Xbox platforms and ignores all the uh, Bethesda fans who might own Sony consoles. And the, the gist of the person's apologies was that I'm sorry that, that, you know, there's really nothing we can do. This is just kind of how it is. Yada, yada, which to any person not invested in this can look at from a distance and understand. Yes. Microsoft is wanting to recoup some of their investment in Bethesda. That's why it's exclusive. Makes total sense. Ish. Ish, but you can see the li- the reasoning in the in the line of thinking. Well, the, I I can see the line of thinking of let's keep it exclusive here because you know we know Bethesda has a lot of fans, and let's hope to use this as a opportunity to sell to actually move some Xboxes. <clears throat> Um, to try to win over those PlayStation people. Like, I could see that for sure. But, you know, in terms of trying to cast a wide net, that I'm not so sure about. Well, they might not be concerned about casting a uh, a wide net. They uh, may let some of the other Bethesda franchises do that. But also, too, as we've said before, this Starfield franchise 
has not appeared anywhere else before. So they're no. starting it exclusive on Xbox. So that is the conditioned behavior and conditioned expectation from the outset. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and, th- and that's perfectly fine as well. Like, I mean, they can – the fact that someone was actually apologizing is a little bit strange to me because – it's not like console exclusives also still don't technically exist. I mean, we have Horizon Zero Dawn and everything like that on the PlayStation, as well as like Gears of War. That's a Xbox only franchise. So it's not unheard of to have a game just release be, you know, developed and released for a specific console. So not everything has to be on everything. It's true. I mean, look at the fact that, that God of War exists. That is being done by Sony. But perhaps the difference being now that uh, Bethesda used to be a third-party company, but now they're a first-party company. Yeah, so if that's the the only concern there, I don't think that's a valid concern on their part. So, yeah. However, if it's an established franchise, like The Elder Scrolls or like Fallout, then it probably can't slash shouldn't be a first party title anymore, like at, or at that point moving forward, because people already have an expectation of it. And it would be kind of weird if it just became an Xbox exclusive. It would be, there'd be a, a lot of backlash that uh, Microsoft and Bethesda would have to deal with. And it just might not be worth their while. Yeah. Uh, plus two, I'm sure the next elder scrolls game has already been in development for the next place for PlayStation five work. I'm sure has already been done towards that prior to the acquisition by Microsoft. Yep. So just keep going, just keep doing with it and rolling with it. So Starfield, if again, if you want to mark it on your calendar, 11, 11, 22, uh, Dennis is quite confident it will release on that because Todd Howard's a crazy, crazy person. Yep. But uh, aside from Starfield, uh, Microsoft had some of their own first-party titles that uh, are releasing prior to next year, which is good because what the hell are you going to do to try and move consoles that you can't really get in people's hands anyway? But nevertheless, uh, they announced that Forza Horizon, the next entry in the Forza Horizon series, coming out this fall on November 9th to the Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and PC as well. So uh, a new entry in the Forza series. Interesting. Uh, but if you prefer your experience to be in the air as opposed to racing on land, uh, you'll be pleased to hear that the Microsoft Flight Simulator, uh, the latest entry in the Flight Simulator series, that is literally now just called Microsoft Flight Simulator, because let's make everything a confusing naming scheme, uh, it's coming to the Xbox platforms. It is coming to Xbox Series X and Series S on July 27th, which I guess is uh, somewhat expected. Although what was unexpected was the announcement at the very tail end of the trailer that this uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator, simula- simulator game, which is very hard to say, is going to get a, uh, a crossover, uh, cross-promotional DLC pack with Paramount Studios to promote Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Top Gun Maverick, if you don't know, is the pending sequel to Top Gun, the big 80s action blockbuster with Tom Cruise as a uh, hot young fighter pilot in an elite squadron of the American Air Force. Yes, there's a sequel. It's coming. He's playing the exact same role. Top Gun Maverick is getting cross-promotional DLC in Microsoft Flight Simulator. I mean... 
I'd say that's weird sounding, but it's not even in the ballpark of some of the weirdest sounding stuff I've ever heard. So, um, yeah, good for them, I guess, for having that weird cross promotion. I mean, if, if there, if ever there was a, I want to say, I guess now franchise that makes sense to tie in with, it's Top Gun. I mean, sure. And if uh, there's a game franchise for Top Gun to tie into, perhaps the most appropriate one is Mike is Flight Simulator. Yep. It'd be weird if there was Top Gun Maverick DLC to come out for a Pilot Wings game. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> First of all, there would have to be a Pilot Wings game. Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I, I could I could still see it. I mean, as long as there's, like, you know, a fighter pilot mode, <laughs> like, it would... any Anything, you know, would work as long as there's, like, you know, some sort of mode where you're actually flying a, a jet. It wouldn't make sense if it was Mortal Kombat. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, that with Tom Cruise's character, truly, yes, Maverick is here to kick ass. He's just basically Johnny Cage. <laughs> well, I can see it not working. Never mind. I, I take that back. Actually, you know what? The Tom Cruise character wouldn't work as well in Mortal Kombat as the fighter jet itself would work in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> yeah, just as a part of a fatality. <laughs> It's like, well, that would have to be Tom Cruise's, like, animality, right? Like, his character just transforms into the fighter jet and then just, like, you know, shoots missiles at the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Explodes him into, into smithereens. Yeah. Uh, so this After getting, just before getting a little bit more meta with, like, you know, zooming really in close into, like, the cockpit of the fighter jet, and you see Arnold Schwarzenegger there saying, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, this game just got way off the rails. What's happening? <laughs> Have you got a True Lies and Top Gun reference here? What's going on? <laughs> no, none of that is actually happening. Ignore all this bananas nonsense I'm talking about. <laughs> it's just my brain going off on wild directions. Don't worry about it. And this is why you and I don't make games. Yeah, I mean, among other reasons. Just, you know, <laughs> lack of lack of real know-how or direction or like, you know, stick to and all of that stuff. Aside from that, putting all that aside, this is the reason the way too crazy bananas ideas we have, but uh, this Top Gun Maverick DLC will come to the Microsoft flight simulator franchise on PC and Xbox platforms, Xbox series X platforms on November 19th, which I suppose puts it closer to the release date for the Top Gun Maverick movie, which is something the world has not asked for and yet will still receive because we are governed only by kind, benevolent forces. <laughs> yes. Uh, but other things announced at the Microsoft show, we finally have a release date for the next Psychonauts game. So that's uh, good. Finally, Tim Schafer will have something to show for the uh, buyout his company got, Double Fine Games got, when it was purchased and acquired by Microsoft a couple of years ago. Uh, and Microsoft will have something to show for their investment. Hooray! Don't know what the budget was on this one, but I'm sure Tim Schafer blew right past it. <laughs> yep. Uh, so Psychonauts 2 is going to release on August 25th. Uh, it's going to come to the uh, uh, Xbox and PC. Uh, and apparently uh, it's also coming to PlayStation platforms. Uh, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and PC, so that's interesting. We'll be on Xbox Game Pass from day one as well. 
so look forward to that. And a title actually that, uh, I think was kind of, well, I think we knew it was in development, but now it has a release date, but kind of surprising. It's been so long since there's been another one of these is Age of Empires. Yeah, I had to like do a quick, you know, double take on the Age of Empires 3 release date because that was back in 2005 and it's been, as far as I can tell, kind of dormant since then. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe there have been phone games released and stuff, but Age of Empires 4 has a release date of October 28th coming up. So that's, um, yeah, 14 years after the fact, um, Sorry, 16 years after the fact, 2005. To 2021, yes. 2021, that's, the math is correct, so, yeah. yeah. So, it's, uh, that's a long time. Yes, yes it is. That is a very long time, and that's, that's almost, uh, uh, Duke Nukem Forever territory for how long it takes to, to crank out a, the next game in a franchise. Yeah, though, I mean, I, I think, I think it's only valid making that comparison and or criticism if they were developing Age of Empires 4 for those entire 16 years, which I don't know if they have been. I mean, I'd be surprised if they were, but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they were. Maybe they've just been kind of like picking away at it and going, eh, eh, maybe, eh. <laughs> All right. so, are, are we still doing that? Oh, I don't know. Eh, let's take lunch. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I can see why nothing would ever get done. There's a lot of lunches being taken in those offices. Yes. You know, maybe there's also a lot of alcohol and cigarettes being consumed. Maybe it's a 1960s, you know, Madison Avenue advertising agency style situation they have set up there. I don't know. (laughs) Hey, you got to boost morale somehow. (laughs) Yes. By wrecking everyone's livers. (laughs) Scotch and cigarettes, baby. Yes, scotch and cigarettes, baby. Hit them where it hurts. Their <laughs> liver. Uh, okay. Note to self, don't work for Microsoft. Or Anyways, um, do I work for Microsoft? Yeah. As huh. if that's even on the table for me, yes. <laughs> well, you're closer to it than I would be, so. F- fair enough. Uh, Anyways, but uh, of of the games that were announced, um, you know, there's the usual trailer hyping it up and hyping the action in some kind of release date. And uh, the one trailer that I think was perhaps the most enjoyable, though said the least, but yeah, it still kind of said the most. It, it walked this very fine line between all those pathways was the trailer for The Outer Worlds 2. And all we really got was just kind of the announcement trailer for it, that it's something that is in development. It's a project that is going to be coming at a future date, and we know the title for it. And the 90-second long trailer was a very meta and self-aware take on game trailers. Yeah, like it, it almost kind of got into, um, if you remember the Stanley Parable, it kind of got into that territory for me. I can see that. That's a good comparison. Yeah. Which, yeah, if you've never heard of or played the Stanley Parable, I think there's like a, a remastered cut coming out for current gen consoles sometime in the next year and a bit from what I recall reading, but look up, you know, gameplay videos and stuff if you haven't. It. It's a very interesting idea. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, they, they, 
they channeled a lot of that type of energy, that type of um, self-aware meta energy into this, which, you know, I appreciate. Indeed. And I think it's one of the rare times I've seen a game trailer actually be meta and uh, offer a take and a self-awareness in their trailer. Yeah. And also say nothing because there's nothing really to say because the game is still apparently, I guess, so early in development. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like they acknowledge that they have to do it, even though they don't know why, because they're not ready. <laughs> but, you know, they did it in a funny way that still kind of like just lets you know. Again, it's kind of like the Metroid Prime 4 thing, just letting you know, hey, it's still being worked on, I guess, like just to keep you interested. But um in case it was, you know, just to keep it in the top of your head, like just in case you forgot about it, it's like, oh, yeah, The Outer Worlds. Right. I guess there's a sequel being worked on. Okay, cool. So if you haven't seen it, it's entirely possible you missed it because uh, of the other things. You know, there isn't much substance to it, so you may have glossed over it. Uh, you can watch it or find the link to it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. We link to it there as well as the videos for everything else we've spoken about on this episode. And one last item from the Xbox uh, uh, showcase to get to was the fact that Microsoft is now going to be offering full browser support for the Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. The Game Pass Ultimate being Microsoft's uh, game streaming platform, and they've been slowly rolling it out to devices here, devices there, but now it's getting full web browser support. Uh, this was announced, I believe, in a blog post uh, that actually more directly deal or dealt with the Microsoft and Bethesda E3 showcase, which is all well and good, but uh, Game Pass, yeah, now it's going to be coming to browsers, and mo more importantly, it's just going to play and work in the browser. You don't need a specific app or anything else for it. It's literally just browsers. So it's going to work in Chrome. It's going to work in Edge. Obviously going to work in Edge. Uh, it's also going to work in Safari, which then means you'll be able to use Xbox Game Pass on iOS platforms. Yeah, without them having to go through the App Store. Problem solved. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, a very clever workaround. So good on them. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a good solution. I mean, it's, it's also been a solution that's been viable for quite some time. So I'm glad to see a major company finally just taking the jump with this. Um, not sure exactly how people are going to react or how people are going to, like, interact on their phone and stuff. Hopefully they, they figure it all out and are able to just kind of use it fine. Still, yeah, some, I mean, still some things to, to work out and clarify. I'm sure this is still an ongoing, uh, rollout, slow and steady rollout for the Xbox game pass. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's really cool. I think. Yeah. It's a, a neat idea. And, uh, Microsoft, uh, wanting, you know, people to play their games. It seems like Microsoft uh, with the Xbox division is taking more an approach of, uh, the content is what matters and the, the boxes on the hardware and the platforms less. So the platforms are just and consoles are means to play the content and the content is King. Yeah. And that's, I think how it really should be when it comes to putting out games and really like considering, you know, your consumer, yeah, I I think I even read uh, a couple days ago too that uh, Microsoft is going to look at uh, uh, partnering with uh, companies and TV manufacturers to perhaps have apps for the Xbox Game Pass included, or at least available to uh, be downloaded onto TVs and smart TV devices too. 
Yeah, that'd be cool, like getting it on your Roku or whatever. It, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that is going to be a rollout we see more and more of, uh, in the future. But, uh, one last, uh, E3 related item to get to here, kind of amusing, kind of struck me at least as being, uh, a bit of a head scratcher and kind of like, oh, this is so very this person. But, uh, just ahead of E3, Jeff Keighley did his kickoff for the Summer Games Festival and during which time he had a, uh, uh, I guess, video FaceTime call with his uh, close personal friend, Hideo Kojima. And it was during this FaceTime call slash satellite interview that Hideo Kojima ran a uh, piece of, well, a trailer, some new footage for Death Stranding, the director's cut. (laughs) So Hideo Kojima announced a Death Stranding director's cut. It's going to come and apparently be optimized and, and uh, you know, uh, decked out and, and look all good and spiffy and clean for the PlayStation 5. That's fine, but it's the director's cut. So it means it's going to be his true vision of the game. You know, nothing cut out, blah, 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 for a game that he had full creative control over. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm pretty confused by this. I mean, I, it's a very weird game. I, I kind of, I didn't, I don't want to say I dropped it. I just haven't played it in a while. Um, it's very weird and there's a lot. Let's just say it's a very typical Kojima type experience that I've had so far with it. And, uh, I don't know what a director's cut is going to add if not more possible kojima confusion uh apparently it's going to have more playable content and yet from the trailer all we really got and learned is that you'll be able to hide in boxes because that's that's all the the norman reedus character did he kind of was in a uh storage room found a box with some oranges and emptied out the oranges and hid in the box like folded it up and hid inside there which is basically equivalent to uh, Hideo Kojima just winking at the audience going, I know what you really know me for. <laughs> Which, you know, everyone is like, yeah, obviously that's what Solid Snake always did. Great. You're making a reference to that. That's your big greatest hit. Oh, okay, you're you're referencing the greatest hit. Gotcha. Noted. Good, good job, Kojima. But uh, what, what could he have possibly have left out? I don't know. I literally don't know. Like, it's not like he had Konami breathing down his neck going, you have to hit this deadline and stop spending all this money on crazy crap. Like, this is literally his own company making its own game. What does he need to make a director's cut for? Who is telling him what he can't do? Did, did he have editors? Did he have uh, people saying, no, you need to cut this, uh, the the game flow just kind of, you know, bottlenecks right here, you know, this is a slow part, and so is he revisiting it and he's finally fired that person? <laughs> I don't know. Is that person also named Hideo Kojima? <laughs> did he have, like, a ceremonial, like, firing of himself and then a rehiring of you know, someone to take his place that was just himself again? <laughs> Is he that level of crazy now? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, from, just from the trailers that were coming out uh, leading up to the release of Death Stranding, you and I spoke on this program as we'd kind of go through the trailers as they got longer and longer and longer that we had no idea what the hell was being done in the game and what it would be about. And, and it looked crazy. 
and it still looks crazy. And, and I'm sure it plays crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get the, the concept that director's cuts, uh, you know, are kind of a, a neat, uh, buzzy term these days with, uh, uh, Zack Snyder getting his Justice League director's cuts, uh, put out by HBO Max back in March and, uh, some other people perhaps having the chance to revisit their previous works in director's cuts. And that's all well and good, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. Like, if the idea and premise is that it's just more so optimized for the PlayStation 5 and all the hardware on it and whatnot, that's fine. Um, but maybe just call it uh, Enhanced Edition or something. Yeah, or like extra stuff I, th- I just thought of edition. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually is a subtitle I could see Kojima putting on a game. Yeah. The extra stuff I just thought of, DLC packs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, Hideo Kojima, um, still a crazy creative person. That, that's the yeah. takeaway. That's all we know. He's a crazy creative person who either, I, I guess, cut some stuff he didn't want to cut or uh, was forced to cut some stuff he didn't want to cut. Whatever the case, a fuller version of Death Stranding is going to come to the PlayStation 5 at some point in the future. As I said, that's in the future, but perhaps now we should take some minutes, take some moments to look back to the past and reflect on some things that uh, perhaps you've experienced, perhaps you've played, watched, listened to, uh, read, whatever the case might be. But we are going to be in the blast from the past right now as we have two items celebrating milestone anniversaries. They are both uh, very worth your time. They are both very enjoyable titles. Uh, one is much older than the other. One is kind of younger, but one is also an important part uh, of our development as uh, gaming fans from younger years. So, uh, uh, and they're both entirely different from each other. So, where should we start this time? Well, I think we could probably start with the older of the two things. Hmm. Um, the older of the two things is a movie from. Back in June of 1976 is when it was released. It is an odd movie in the canon of, well, actually, I don't even know if it's really an odd movie in the canon of this director. He kind of liked to do different things with each of his movies. One time he did a black and white movie. One time he did, um, you know, basically a, a send up to Hitchcock. This time he did a silent movie. The director we're talking about is Mel Brooks, and the movie is called Silent Movie. <laughs> um, so basically, I guess Mike the Legend and myself would probably both consider Mel Brooks, you know, one of like the legends of comedy, like comedic genius, definitely super influ- influential to both of our comedic sensibilities, I guess. Um, you know, like, and I also would argue that he's probably super influential on kind of modern comedy in general in terms of like, you know, what you can and can't do in a movie and things like that. Uh, but, you know, obviously comedy is like a, a continuum and there's, you know, there was people before Mel Brooks and, you know, part of the, the whole history of film was that before there was sound, there was just video and, you know, that was, Hence the silent picture. I mean, hopefully this is not news to anyone who's listening to this. But if you are a young person who was not aware of this, yes, movies didn't always have sound. And back in those days when movies did not have sound, they still were making comedies. Like there was a couple of 
pretty um, notable people who, even to this day, when you look at some of their movies, they still hold up. Um, those people being Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton in particular, who made some pretty legendary silent films, silent comedies. Um, I mean, Charlie Chaplin kind of later went on to also do some talkies and with also great success in that. But the thing about silent movies is that they require basically all the gags have to be intensely visual and intensely like obvious what they're going for with very minimal quote unquote dialogue with the dialogue being presented, you know, and being moved forward as, you know, little title cards that interject themselves in between, you know, actual acting scenes. That's the format of, you know, silent movies. You see like a title card with either a quote or like, you know, explaining what's happening in the scene. You see a bit of the scene, you see, you know, someone open their mouth for an exclamation towards someone. Then you actually get to see, you know, another title card saying what they're saying and things like that. The Mel Brooks like silent movie pays perfect tribute to those. And with the exception of like, you know, maybe one or two problematic jokes that, you know, are not okay to make anymore. I would say it still holds up. I I would say it still holds up. It's uh it's a ridiculous concept to, in the 70s, attempt to make a silent movie, yet the premise of this movie, silent movie, is about someone in the 70s trying to make a silent movie. Yeah. So it's a silent movie with a very meta premise. Yeah. Which Mel Brooks... <laughs> Mel Brooks did that quite a lot, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I liked him so much, was he was constantly breaking the fourth wall. Which was a no-no. You're not supposed to do that. Like, good storytelling tells that you're not supposed to be breaking the fourth wall. But he was constantly breaking the fourth wall. If you watch any of his movies, people are always looking at the camera going, what? Or like, hey, or like, you know, getting the audience in on a joke of like, get a load of this guy. You're like, you're not supposed to talk to the camera. What are you doing? <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's. Uh, or even some of the camera jokes from High Anxiety. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> or like the the whole like end of Blazing Saddles, basically, <laughs> when everything just goes totally off the rails at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, a it's a ridiculous concept for a movie. It's a ridiculous premise. It's ridiculous that it's uh, a silent movie being done in the seventies, long after talkies had come along and phased out silent movies. But yet, then if you look at the, the cast list and just the number of people that, uh, Mel Brooks is able to get either playing characters or just doing cameos in the movie, it's like a who's who of who's big Hollywood stars in the seventies. Yeah. I mean, you got Burt Reynolds, James Kahn, Liza Minnelli, Anne Bancroft, Marcel Marceau, Paul Newman, like, you know, the three stars, Mel Brooks, Marty Feldman, Dom DeLuise. Uh, Bernadette Peters, Sid Caesar, Harold Gould, Ron Carey, Carol Arthur, Liam Dunn, Fritz Field. Like, I could go on and on. Like, Henny Youngman is even in the movie. Like, <laughs> like you know, Take My Wife, Please. The, the guy, you know, that penned that line is in the movie. Uh, like, yeah, there's... Like, basically, when you think of 1970s comedy... Chances are you're going to think of someone who's in this movie. 
Yeah, uh, and you may not have known they were in this movie, but uh, there's a good chance they're in there. I enjoy that even Rudy DeLuca is in this movie, and he's like long been one of the producers who's just worked with Mel Brooks through uh, so much of his early comedies. Like a producer, yeah. co-writer, I think he was a studio exec may have been, but just worked on getting the, the classic Mel Brooks movies out, movies out there as well. And uh, yeah, uh, Sid Caesar. I, I still enjoy Sid Caesar being in this because it ties everything kind of back together with uh, yeah. Mel Brooks getting his start as a writer on your show of shows, which starred Sid Caesar. Mm-hmm. And now writing and getting Sid Caesar to star in a movie he's writing. And then, of course, that's also where they met Carl Reiner and other folks. So uh, I also think this might have been the introduction of Burt Reynolds as someone who is actually funny to the world, because I think to that point he was more like just kind of doing stunts and, you know, being in more serious roles and stuff. I mean, to that point, I think his most notable role at that point would have been what deliverance, uh, deliverance, maybe the Smokey and the bandit movies. Those were also in the seventies, but I think Smokey and the bandit, the first one from what I recall was, uh, 19, 77? So, this is a year before that. So it is, so it is. Well, he so, well, he had Longest Yard, too. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, but I, I think, I think people didn't really consider him as, like, a really funny person. I mean, until Silent Movie, because, I mean, like, uh, just looking through... Um, on the Wikipedia page, there's a whole section uh, dedicated to the production notes. And there's a quote, like, there's a whole section where Reynolds was describing his cameo. And he was saying, like, the quote here from Burt Reynolds is that he says, Mel is one of the first directors in town who said, God, you're funny. Originally, I was going to do another segment in the film. But the time I had this house up on the hill, I'd gotten a big R from Republic Studios and put it on the gate. The decor was early gauche. I had my initials everywhere, BR on the rugs, the ashtrays everywhere. It was a joke. It made me laugh. It made people who came there laugh. It was the kind of joke I like to play on myself. At parties, I used to put lights around the R. Uh, Mel took that and ran with it for the part I played, like which the part he played was basically just like a full-of-himself actor who has basically built a shrine to himself, <laughs> <laughs> which is like ridiculous. But, you know... The fact that he was able to play along with it, I think, just really was sort of like a a point in time for him where it was just kind of like, oh, Burt Reynolds is pretty funny, actually. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, him and, you know, Dom DeLuise becoming basically inseparable comedic friends there for, like, basically the rest of their lives, I would say. And this is true. So, uh and... Uh, I think as we spoke on last episode, uh, when talking about uh, History of the World Part 1, and I made the comment that uh, it's probably my favorite of the Mel Brooks uh, classic comedies, I think one of the greatest jokes in all of uh, Mel Brooks's filmography is in this movie. And that's when he gets uh, Marcel Marceau to uh, uh, utter, utter a line in the movie, which is also the only spoken line in the movie, but it's the line uttered and spoken by Marcel Marceau. Who, yeah. Who was a famous it, mime. Yeah. And it's a silent movie. It's, it's, it, you're not expecting it. And when it happens, it's so funny. 
which spoiler alert, but also it's not a spoiler alert because it's a 55 year old movie at this point. 45, 50, 45 year old movie at this point. 45. So it's okay to spoil a 45 year old movie. Uh, See, that's one of the great jokes, but then there's a follow up joke right after that, which I think kind of gets lost in it where uh, the nature of the joke is that there's a phone call happening between Mel Brooks's producer and Marcel Marceau, and he's trying to convince Marcel Marceau to be in his silent movie, and Marcel Marceau just doesn't go along with it, and he says no. And then right after that, Mel Brooks's character just turns around to, like, Marty Feldman and Dom DeLuise when they ask him, like, oh, so what do you say? What do you say? Mel Brooks just turns to them and says, I didn't understand him. <laughs> So that kind of comedy yeah. is all throughout silent movie. Yeah. Also Marty Feldman. Yes. Just, I'd like to mention Marty Feldman. Like he was uh, a man that, w- that died way too young. And also, yeah, weird looking guy, really funny guy, you know, just young Frankenstein also did a bunch of stuff with the Monty Python people back in Britain. So, um, yeah. So, so anyways, silent yeah, movie a- by Mel Brooks, totally worth your time as it celebrates its 45th anniversary. But let's go ahead in a bit in time and also go back in time to 1991, more specifically June 23rd, 1991, for that is the day that Sega released Sonic the Hedgehog to the world, more specifically to the North American world for the Sega Genesis and really kicked off the 16-bit wars. Yeah. So to that point, I mean, Nintendo had their mascot, and they were kind of running almost unopposed, you know, with Mario and, you know, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and then later the Super Nintendo, continuing that forward. But Sega had, you know, a console out, but they didn't really have... A mascot that stuck. I mean, I think they tried a couple of times, like with what Alex Kidd and maybe a couple other games that they tried to make, you know, that, a couple other franchises that they had that they tried to, you know, push forward, but they never really struck upon a proper mascot until this game came out. And this game obviously was Sonic the Hedgehog. And it's every bit the opposite of Mario. Yeah, so Mario is like, I don't want to say it's slow, but, you know, it's very kind of like methodical and, you know, the levels are all very much like you need to know the layout, you need to know where the enemies are, you need to kind of learn the level to beat the level. Sonic the Hedgehog was very much, it felt like the opposite type approach of just go and, you know, We'll help you out and you'll just keep kind of going through and like, you know, don't worry about it. You're going really fast. It'll be fine. (laughs) It's just kind of the feeling I always got with Sonic games. I mean, yeah, there were parts that you had to learn and kind of be aware of, but the focus was more on the speed and making it feel more like a roller coaster rather than the whole approach of just kind of like you doing the work and just kind of propelling yourself. It was like you're being propelled through this crazy thing. As opposed to propel yourself and like, you know, the, the pacing was totally different. Pacing was totally different. And not only that, the, the approach to levels was uh, fairly different. Whereas with, uh, the, you know, uh, Mario games prior to that point, basically the first three Mario games, um, 
and even to some extent Super Mario World, uh, the Mario games felt very ground based in that you started at one point and you knew your end point was going to be somewhere else on the ground and wherever you went in between, um, you know, didn't really matter because your end point is going to end up also on the ground just a bit further to the right of where you started. But there was a, there was bigger maps, it felt like, in the Sonic the Hedgehog games. And also more verticality where you could easily be shot out and go up uh, several levels and have no idea where the hell you were or go down several levels and have no idea where the hell you were all in the same stage as you sought to get to the end of the level and ultimately hit the, uh, uh, you know, marker to cross the finish line. So yeah. there was a lot and there was just stuff all around. Like there was, it felt like, especially in Sonic the Hedgehog, there was just something everywhere, uh, uh, and it would be very common to, as you're running along in your little speedball of a Sonic character, to uh, unfortunately run into an enemy and lose a whole bunch of your rings. Yep. Which happened so many times. So, And it just felt like there was, I don't know, as, uh, I don't know if this was a conscious design choice or not. I'm going to say it may have been, probably at the time. But there was a lot more sharp edges and sharp pointy things in the Sonic games than there were in the... Uh, uh, Mario games. Yeah, I mean, like, in Mario games up to that point, like, you never really saw spikes or anything like that. Like, you saw lava, you saw water that you could fall into, you saw, you know, enemies coming at you, you saw fireballs being shot at you, but you never saw spikes and you never really saw, you know, anything that looked like it could have impaled the main character. <laughs> um but Sonic the Hedgehog had a lot of this. It, it did have a lot of this, and uh, a lot of the enemies had uh, spikes to them too. But now we know the uh, yes, there there are the uh, the you know red spiky shell characters in Mario games. Yes, but it seemed like there was a uh, more enemies with more spikes in the Sonic the Hedgehog game. Yeah, though I, I think part of that too is just the fact that you know the whole idea of it being well, these are actually just forest creatures that were turned into robots by this crazy evil Dr. Robotnik who is turning all these animals into robots. Um, so like, obviously he's designing them to be kind of more deadly because I guess he, I don't exactly remember the, the setup, but from what I recall, it was trying to be more along the lines of like uh, building his army of robots or something because he wanted to take over the world because he was a mad scientist. Yes, and even that premise just is more sinister and a bit darker and a bit more mature than the classic Mario premise of, oh, Bowser's taken over the castle and stolen the princess, yada yada. Yeah. So the there was a great sense of speed. Uh, like the first Sonic game, you know, you get the sense of speed, but really it's in Sonic 2 and 3 when you really get the sense of speed just amped up even more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but even the first one was enough to satisfy... Uh, and present a whole new gaming experience to people. And I think it was in the first one too. You'd, uh, as a player, you'd run into instances where Sonic would kind of be ahead of, uh, the screen and you'd have to wait for the game and screen and, and basically the Genesis to catch up to where Sonic w was supposed to be. Yep. Ah, yes. Classic. Of course, that's not really going to happen these days because of all the processing and whatnot and processing power, but hey. Happened back then, and uh, back in 1991, and, and through the rest of the early to mid-90s, it, it blew your damn mind. 
Yeah. <laughs> it sure did. Yeah. And that, that, you know, being, you know, on the Nintendo side of the border, that was always sort of a thing that seemed weird and kind of cool to me about Sonic the Hedgehog in particular was like, they really did capture that sense of speed a lot better than I ever had in any other game before. Cause it was like, somehow your character is already off the screen and the screen couldn't keep up. It was like, was this an error? No, it was clearly a conscious effort on their part when they were designing the game to make it feel that way. And it really like made the sense of speed feel that much greater when you're just like, Whoa, he's like so fast. He's off the screen. Whoa, the screen is like really rushing to keep up. You never got that with any Mario games. God, no, he, uh, you know, he, he could run fast, uh, or run at his fastest if he had the, uh, the, you know, invincibility star, but that was it. Yeah. But like, even at his fastest, I mean, the screen was keeping up fine because it was just a dude running. <laughs> it wasn't like some like super enhanced crazy hedgehog that was like, you know, had, you know, some special ability where he would just ramp up and like, fly off in some ball somewhere. Like he's got like some turbocharged engine under his belt. Like it's just a dude running. It, it, it was a fat Italian plumber running. Yeah. That's all it was. <laughs> <laughs> Which when you oversimplify it like that, it sounds maybe a little bit crass, but that, that the, the camera had no problem keeping up with Mario as he's, you know, side scrolling himself through these worlds. But Sonic was like blasting through, like it was like there was rockets attached to his feet or something. It's and true, he, and then going off springs or through the loop de loops, it's like whoa, that just further enhanced it, it, the sense of speed. Like going through yeah. some of those ricochets and, too. And specifically, yeah, it's like when you're off the screen and it takes a second for the screen itself to catch up to where you are, that makes it feel faster. So yeah, like I, I got to really hand it to them for figuring that out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, one of the main, you know, differences, main selling points. One of the, one of the main wow factors that, uh, this game had, but it was an entirely new experience, uh, and gave Sonic, uh, just a real advantage in the, uh, uh, console wars of the early nineties because the, the kids who kind of grew up with the NES, they were getting older, uh, and Perhaps they wanted something a bit older, a new experience, not the same old Mario time in, time out. And hey, Sega's here for you with Sonic. Yeah. And it was uh, uh, clearly a uh, calculation that uh, worked out in their favor with Sonic going on to become now one of the staple standard characters in uh, in the gaming universe uh, of all gaming franchises being able to be spun out into many other forms. Look at all the uh, Sonic animated series that we have had. We're now moving on to our second Sonic live action movie as production is continuing on that, I think out in Vancouver. So uh, yeah, Sonic is now just a staple character accepted into the mainstream all because it started on the Sega Genesis, at least here in North America uh, 30 years ago. So Hey, Sonic is still moving pretty damn good for a 30 year old. <laughs> yeah. Just wait till, uh, Sonic hits 35 though. That's when things really slow down and then the knees and ankles just hurt all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll be getting a little bit more unexplained back pain. Let's just say, you know, maybe you should consider working a little bit more strength training into your cardio routine that you clearly have been keeping up with for so long, but. Yeah, you need to work on that bone density, Don it, Sonic. You know, it's, uh, 
to, to combat some of that other potential problems moving forward. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, precisely. And then once you hit 40, well, you're just not going to run like you used to. <laughs> yeah, it's just a fact of life. No, you, the, uh, the metabolism's gone. You, no matter how much cardio you do, it's, uh, yeah, just not going to be as fast anymore and just not going to burn through those chili dogs as fast as you used to either. So <laughs> exactly, you know, you take a more sensible approach. Maybe you are using whole wheat buns and, uh, maybe not chili. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a vegan chili. Well, you know, really, it's not about what you eat. It's about how much you eat. Just install, like, you know, when, get a, get a fitness tracking app on your phone or something, get a little kitchen scale and then just kind of like make sure you're not going way over with your portion sizes. That's all it really is, Sonic. There you go. Life advice from people who've been there. <laughs> so that is life advice from us people who are beyond 30, giving life, life advice to Sonic, as Sonic the Hedgehog came out 30 years ago. Uh, and before that, we spoke of Mel Brooks in his uh, ridiculous movie, Silent Movie, which turns 45 years old. Uh, it is perhaps one of the uh, lesser heralded classics of uh, Mel Brooks's uh, early filmography. Yeah, I think so. But still worthwhile, worth watching, and worth your time. And we thank you for giving us your time on this uh, expanded edition of the Arcade. Uh, We thank you so much for joining us uh, in one straight shot, if you perhaps have long distances to drive, or uh, over multiple listens. However you consumed this episode, we thank you for enjoying it and listening to it. And uh, we'll say, if we missed anything, there's anything you thought we should talk about from E3, are you as excited by a new all-digital format for E3, or do you want to go back to the old days of the convention space, the physical space where uh, the the companies have booths to show off and there's just more wow and spectacle to it, and also more people? Let us know. You can email us your thoughts on that and anything else. Info at thearcadejoke.com, and you can also hit us up through social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, at The Arcade Show on both those platforms as well. We're on iTunes, and we're on Google Podcasts, so if you haven't uh, subscribe to us already. You should subscribe somewhere else while you're at it too. Uh, direct links to our pages on both of those podcast platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So that wraps us up for this E3. We thank you so much for joining us and hope you can join us again next time. So until then, good night everybody. Good night.